Welcome to The Single Source, a podcast series brought to you by global financial service provider Apex Group. The Single Source hosts a diverse mix of industry veterans, rising stars, finance experts and investment enthusiasts to discuss all things financial services, as well as the things that really matter to Apex, because we are more than just a financial services provider and are here to drive positive change for a more sustainable future in the industry. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody wherever we find you in the world today. My name is Liam Woods. I am the Regional Head of Sales and Business Development for Apex Group in Asia Pacific. And welcome to this latest installment of our single source podcast. I am delighted today that we're looking at Asia for the first time in this podcast series, and we'll be focusing on the fundamentals and aspects of what's going on in the capital raising environment around Asia Pacific, but also looking at some global themes relevant to our region as well. I will be your host for today, but I'm very grateful to be joined by a wealth of expertise coming down the line from Hong Kong and Singapore, both colleagues and friends of Apex Group. Firstly, we have Julian Kurz. Julian is the Managing Director of VCP APEC, private capital advisory business based in Asia. Julian joins VCP APEX after spending a decade or so with Eaton Partners, where he was focusing on origination, distribution, and advisory in the private capital space. So brings a wealth of expertise to today's topic. And also Nicholas Hume, who's CEO of Fundrock Singapore. And after an illustrious 20-year career working with major institutions such as Unigestion, most recently as the general manager for the Asia business, as well as City before that. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining today. Glad to have you with us. The topics we're briefly going to touch on, we're going to look at the LP environment, and we're also going to look at some of the changing dynamic of the GP environment too, but hopefully for a very, very good discussion. So I'm going to get straight in. Nico, I thought we would start with you, given your background in this environment. So I thought we could just talk a little bit about what we're seeing out there from LPs and allocators and investors in the space. Have you seen much change? Has there been much evolving in the region? Why don't you start us off with that? Yeah, thanks, Liam. Hello, everybody. Absolutely. There's been quite a lot of change over the last few years, I would say, as we're seeing some of the larger institutional investors really get a grip on investing in the region. We've seen typically the move from, let's say, pan-regional funds with large buyout funds to looking at more single country investments, as well as going from large buyout pan-regional to even country-specific and also looking for Southeast Asian growth exposure as well in the region. So there's been a change there. I think that also if we're looking at that's over the last couple of years, but if we're looking at it more regionally and even as of the last six months, we've seen a massive switch from your traditional long-only equity, long-only fixed income strategies into more alternative strategies. You know, last year example, you know, there was a billion that was raised in the first month of flows into long-only equity strategies. And that's now been reversed to almost 500 million into alternatives in the first month of the year versus 400 for all of last year. So I think the LP interest across institutionals as well as the banks has really shifted more towards the alternatives, becoming a little bit more specific and really focusing on Southeast Asian growth and more regional and country specific plays rather than the large buyouts. Julian, do you think that makes sense? 
Yeah, all good points. In Southeast Asia, for example, just to expand a bit on that, as you said, there's you know, been a lot of interest recently from LPs there. The market has developed. We've seen the coming online of the consumer in this market. You know, you had many different countries before, but now you have a very young population that is socially and digitally connected. So I've seen a lot of very large deals recently in the ride-hailing space, for example, the e-commerce space, also a lot of capital and private wealth has continued to flow into the region from China and from other parts of the world as well. So quite an interesting time for Southeast Asia growth and buyout. I think also the venture stories become a lot more exciting as well in the past five to seven years. Yeah, absolutely. And we're even seeing now previously when Singapore would probably be the focus of some of these venture capital, new growth companies, tech companies, we're seeing companies coming out of Indonesia, companies coming out of the Philippines, out of Malaysia as well, rather than just Singapore, as it was historically, you've got a number of the other guys that are really starting to work hard in raising capital in the region as well. Yeah, I mean, speaking to somebody that obviously follows this market a great deal, we obviously live in relatively turbulent times and there's still seemingly quite a lot of that continuing in different ways and different themes and different markets across Asia. But it seems very much that the appetite is still very much there. Julian, I think that's a fair statement. Are we actually seeing potentially even an increase in allocations? Yeah, maybe just to step back and look at Asia as a whole from both the global investor perspective and the Asian regional perspective. I mean, I see really two stories that are going on for investors. One is the sense of just the incredible scale that we're talking about here. And the second is more of a story of risk appetite and risk management and, you know, how we actually do that well. So from a scale perspective, we know it's big, $5 trillion economies, two thirds of the current middle class and not surprisingly as you mentioned that we've seen allocations to asia have gone up over the past 15 years from five percent to ten percent to fifteen percent so there's no slowing down whatsoever so i guess the question is which brings us to our second theme is how we do that well because over the last few years with the challenges going on with the market we've seen a flight to familiarity so lps as you both said have been focused on re-ups with existing GPs, and they've also deployed capital to the larger pan-regional funds. Yeah, absolutely. One point I wanted to mention is that from a global and a European and either US fund-to-fund perspective or global asset allocator, there's always been a argument when it comes to deploying capital into Southeast Asia in terms of what is the right discount rate. When you're looking at it from a European perspective or a US perspective, people are expecting Southeast Asian or even Asian investments that we need to have a much higher discount rate because they have this perceived increase in risk. Whereas, as you mentioned just a minute ago, the demographics on our side, the growth is on our side, all of the opportunities for development are here. So is it more risky? I don't think so. I think that perhaps that should be a barrier that we could try and overcome in the future as well. Yeah, in terms of Southeast Asia as well, you've seen an increased appetite for direct investments and also co-investments as well as secondaries. On the co-investment side, if you're an LP that has made a fund investment, you know, there may be transactions that require more capital and the GP obviously wants to partner 
with. So these are more growth oriented type of deals and similar on the direct side, a lot of LPs I've seen are trying to build direct practices. So you've seen the sovereign wealth funds, some of the pension funds and also family offices in Southeast Asia. They've made strategic investments synergistic to their own businesses. And we expect that this will be a trend that will continue. I think you both touched on some really interesting points there, and I'm going to stick with the themes of kind of risk appetite in Asia and whether there needs to be an expanded risk return profile there to kind of get a sense from you guys. And let's stick with the LP market for a second. But where do we see this interest coming from globally? We obviously see a continued rise in Asia, but do we see more appetite coming from around the world? Are there any new themes that we see here? Is there anything that our GPs in the region should be aware of? Julie, why don't we stick with you on that one as well? The first logical place to start is China. Obviously, just to give a macro view, there's been significant recent noise with regulations and so forth. But I mean, having said that, China accounts for 50 to 60 percent of fundraising and investment activity in the region. So it's really a market that you can't ignore. As an investor, would you only look at 40 percent of the market? Now, fundamentally, it's a large economy. It's a very attractive market. It's done very well for most LPs and GPs have produced very successful track records there. I, mean, I guess just to to add, you know, some of the experienced LPs I speak to remain excited about China longer term. So in the very short term, they're trying to be more cautious and understand what it means, how you should play the market. But every crisis has an opportunity and there are a lot of sophisticated GPs across a range of sectors, healthcare technology that continue to perform well. So if you don't have long-term exposure to China as an investor, you know, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mirror that sentiment entirely. I think that from a global fund of fund perspective or a global mandate perspective, historically, like you mentioned at the very beginning of the call, Julian, you know, we started off with 5% allocations to Asia or rest of the world. And majority of that was in China. And now that's moving up to 20 to 25%. So it's about trying to get access to the right managers, the right track records, and and the LPs and the GPs that are there that have the right track records and have the right access to opportunities, not necessarily interfered with by the government. Yeah, those are all good points and completely agree. I mean, I think we just expanding on secondaries really a little bit as well. You know, I've obviously seen coming out of China, right, and also India, There have been a lot of interesting secondary opportunities, so finding real gems at good value in terms of continuing to build your portfolio. Absolutely. In terms of what we're seeing as well, like from an overall perspective, is that that transition, I'm sure that a lot of our GPs and LPs on the call listening will know this, but over the last few years, we moved from traditional LP to LP transactions to secondary continuation funds, tail end funds, actual code investment direct buying out of opportunities to restructure funds on their own. And this is something that's becoming more and more frequent in the region and globally. For sure. I guess one example, you know, from my work experience on the RMB to US dollar fund restructuring side, we've obviously continued to see a lot of stress and buy-in opportunities. So for example, now we took some specific assets out of an RMB vehicle and almost created an arbitrage. So currency controls had created a scarcity of US dollars so that there had been a demand for that. So to be able to bring in US dollars 
to local investors and move the assets in at a discount. And in a short space of time, that specific portfolio was significantly marked up and also had liquid positions. So that's one example echoing your points, Nicholas. This is exactly the kind of thing that we need to be talking about. I mean, these are kind of new and very interesting current themes within the market that we have. So I'm going to just move us on slightly and just flip the conversation. And let's think about it if we're a GP today, which obviously, Julian, is a home that you've spent the best part of a decade working within. So how have we seen GPs evolve to maybe to pick up on some of those newer opportunities that you mentioned or they're potentially fresh balls of capital? Have you seen any major shifts or is it pretty much running like status quo? No, that's a great question. In the past couple of years, we've seen GPs evolve quite a bit. I would say I've seen maybe two major themes. The first is specialization of GPs along with operational value add. So the two go hand in hand. So we've seen GPs become more specialized and also more hands-on to generate good returns. So as a GP, you might just focus on one or two sectors across TMT or consumer goods or healthcare, for example. So as a result, you build up more knowledge, you become more operationally focused as well. So you're able to evaluate opportunities much better, strike a deeper relationship with the entrepreneur as kind of the go-to person when it comes to key strategies, as opposed to relying on a bench of external advisors. So that's one theme that I've seen evolve. I think the second theme. I mean, we already mentioned the secondaries market is booming, especially GP-led transactions. So there's a good level of depth, maturity, and activity going on, which is good. I think the one important point is that the secondary perception is changing. So the stigma around why you would want to do a secondary transaction has gone away now. You know, high-quality managers want to do continuation vehicles to maximize the value of specific assets. You know, there are a multitude of liquidity options one can consider. So those are really the two major themes that I've seen recently. Absolutely. I was sitting here nodding my head in approval to both of those points. First one I'll touch on after the second point is that the perception of secondaries. I remember when I was at Unigestion that and Liam mentioned that I was there first. I mean, we were one of the first institutional investors to both execute, purchase, and create secondary funds and actually sell our secondary funds back into the market. So we did a full transaction, raising a fund, launching a fund, and selling it back into the secondary market after six years to return capital to our investors. And before people would think about you and say, why are you in the secondary markets? Because you can't manage it, or is it because you need capital? No, it was just a more efficient way to return money to our investors after we reached our return target. So I think the total evolution of the secondary market has been great and good for investors and investees on the whole. And your other point that blows me away is that now you're absolutely spot on in terms of looking at strategies that are becoming more specific, more sector specific, and really focusing on strategies and a skill set that you have to be able to offer both the entrepreneurs, the investors, and your LP base. You look at, as an example, Night Dragon, you know, they were oversubscribed first time fund $750 million that they raised last July. I think more than half of that came through private bank distribution. Private bank distribution in terms of trying to raise assets in pretty much anything apart from a blue chip manager like KKR, Carlisle, or these guys is very challenging. Yet these guys managed to raise almost $350 million in two months. So just how being focused on one strategy and delivering cybersecurity 
has managed to not only, I suppose, attack the right theme. So that's one thing we can also mention in terms of LP interest in GP, different themes that we're seeing in the region. But yes, cybersecurity last year, they really managed to sort of hit the nail on the head with that one. And those themes, guys, is there anything else that's keeping us excited in the market? I mean, are there any new invoke strategies, new core markets that you see the market really interested in today? I think that from my perspective, it's all about sort of long-term trends, Liam. You know, it's about the things that are going to keep us moving and keep economic growth or at least manage to maintain growth irrespective of the overall economic environment. So from my perspective, I see it as, let's say, the healthcare, so senior care, child care and education, because that's something as the demographics are shifting, aging population, younger population, we're going to need those those types of services. So there's a raft of new managers focusing only on online education, for example, or senior care solutions in Australia. Then cybersecurity and new technologies are also things that I think are important, as well as, let's say, infrastructure and innovation with regards to new technologies, whether it's green energy, let's say anaerobic digestion, these types of things are definitely parts of the themes that both LPs from a private banking, let's say high net worth individual family office perspective, as well as institutional investors are really starting to look at now. All good points, Nicholas. The infrastructure point that you made, I guess a general point, obviously this discussion is focused on private equity, but as you said, as an LP, now it's important to create a diversified portfolio you know, to generate yield and cash flow. So you know, I've seen interest obviously across infrastructure, private credit, right? Also renewables. And I think just specifically on Asia credit, you know, historically you had more mezzanine and special situations strategies, but direct lending, specifically in the mid-market, has really grown as a portion of total assets. So you know, around 60 billion across the region now, but Having said that, you know, Asia still only comprises about 7% of the global private debt market, which is obviously low given the size of these economies. So there's a lot of room for growth. And obviously both Asian and global investors are looking more closely at the asset class and also looking at some of the newer groups to complement their existing fund commitments to some of the larger players. I couldn't agree with you more on the credit side there, Julian. I mean, we continue to see it might be a small percentage of global capital, but the rate of change is significant. We're starting to see much more in the way of credit specialists come into the region, very diversified portfolios looking at different things around the region. But ever more that diversification, a lot of our larger clients and a lot of the people that we speak to are always interested in whether they can look at harnessing a different part of that capital structure and getting the teams in to do that. So we've seen massive amounts on that on a diversification for the larger groups super interesting space i'm going to move us on gentlemen really interesting context from you both around what we see from the lp market and some of the interesting positions in the gp space as well we are continuing to go through a huge change in our space and i think most of us would agree that the pandemic has expedited some of that as well and we've now got into a process where all of our communications are more digital they're more online they're video calls alongside that we've also seen 
a growth in new forms of fundraising. And Apex has been very, very close to a lot of these. So I'm keen to get your guys' thoughts on a couple of those pieces. So I'd really like to start with digitization. And Nico, if I may, I'll come to you with that first. But I'd also like a couple of views from you both, if we can, on what we seemingly see a lot more of globally and ever more in Asia today, which is those quote-unquote platform solutions where we're consolidating capitals from multiple sources to allocate into, into larger funds and larger portfolios. Nick, can I start with you? Yeah, absolutely. Long and short of it, I think the digitalization process, it's here to stay and it's the future. I think that when we're looking at the platforms, when we're looking at being able to allocate assets online through these platforms, or when we're looking at being able to do due diligence, full due diligence in terms of operational investment, and then on-site due diligence, most of it can be done online. Obviously, you want to be able to see and talk to the managers and press the flesh as you will. But, you know, there are stories about, I think it's Genting Fund, a VC fund. They, they raised 350 to 400 million right in the middle of the pandemic. They were oversubscribed and they did it all over Zoom. And that's not only with incumbent investors, it's new investors as well. It's people that you're walking around the office with an iPad showing people the different teams. And we have to embrace this. I think that the way of the past where we had to spend 14 days traveling to different places to do diligence on site is probably over. It's always nice to still meet people, but I think that we can step away from that. From a platform perspective, that's something that's very close to my heart. I tried to build my own, Liam, and I think that's definitely the way forward in terms of being able to bring people together in a community. It's about sharing information. It's about sharing ideas in an online digital community that has everyone best interests at heart. I think that those are some of the things that are going to be very important. It's about democratizing and being able to allow some of the smaller investors that wouldn't necessarily get access to these types of opportunities. You can use that through the platforms. So I think it's a great change to just your traditional large institutional investors being able to get access to the best opportunities. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more really, because obviously 99% of the population uh, today has been left out from participating in this sector, essentially going back 25 years. You can't just have a portfolio of bonds and stocks and you really would be missing something. So it's been great you know, that we've seen this move into online platforms. And it's now also linked, obviously, to the private wealth market in Asia, especially across Singapore and Hong Kong, which you know, really continues to grow at a really rapid rate. And I think also just you know, from the GP perspective is well, you know, we've seen a move by GPs to invest more in these platform technologies so they can benefit basically from digitizing their own operations. So, you know, everything from back office functions, compliance, you know, onboarding of investors, KYC, all of these things can be moved online and centralized under one service provider. So, yeah, I mean, couldn't agree more. You know, this is really the future that we need to, you know, move to. And as a further point to that, this sort of wholesale acceptance of the digitalization and investing directly, uh, if you look at the flows, going back to one of the points that I wanted to make at the beginning, is the largest winner across all different asset classes over the last six to nine months has been robo-advisors in the region, right? So all of the flows that are coming out of active investments or ETFs are going into robo-advisory platforms. Sure. I think it sounds like we're all agreed in that case, because I would certainly agree with the both of you that it's a really interesting change in the market dynamic. And frankly, 
increases the exposure for all of us to these wonderful investment opportunities that we probably historically weren't going to be getting access to. And of course, from a GP's perspective, the wider access to this capital base can only really be a good thing in the long run, notwithstanding some of the points that Julian's just made as well about the improvement of that investment process. I think me more than most would understand that some of that is still quite a slow and laborious process to go through. So I'm with you both. I think it's a super, super interesting evolution in the market that hopefully we'll see continue. That kind of brings us to the end of the topics that we were going to discuss today. So I'm going to put you both on the spot here. So um, apologies for that in advance. But given where we are today and the points that we've just discussed, if I was to hand you both $10 million as we left this podcast and said, chaps, where are you going to allocate this as of today? What do you think? Where's that going to be going? Julian, why don't we look at you first? No, that's a great question and a great way to finish this off. I think obviously you need to construct diversified portfolio, right, to manage risk. I mean, if I were a newer investor to Asia, I would have some exposure to the fund of funds and the larger Pan-Asia managers. So maybe 25% of my portfolio in Japan on the private equity side, I mean, it continues to be an attractive market. So I'd have 15 to 20% of my exposure there. I'd also have some exposure to China and India through the secondary market, something closer to liquidity. So let's say 15 to 20% of my portfolio. Then aside from private equity, I'd have some exposure to cash generating yield plays, credit, infrastructure, 20 to 25%. And then, you know, finally I'd have an opportunistic bucket of 15 to 20%. So this would be in hot sectors, healthcare, sustainable food on the tech side fintech, e-commerce, and then I'd also continue to look for spin-outs or emerging managers that have continued to perform exceptionally well. Excellent to hear. A highly diversified and seemingly sensible portfolio from Julian there. Ben Graham, we'd be very proud of you. And Nicholas, over to you. Although I had more time to think about it, I don't think I put anywhere near as much thought as Julian has into that question. I think that I would look at some of the themes that I mentioned before. So yeah, infrastructure, renewable energy sources, new technologies, probably about 30% into those types of technologies, new innovative technologies and infrastructure, then probably about 20% into venture capital across healthcare sectors, emerging strategies in in healthcare, oncology, this type of strategy, looking at also probably childcare, that type of strategies across education as well. Then the remaining split between secondaries and private equity. I think I'd probably be pulling away from the equity markets and more traditional assets at this point in time, given sort of concerns about valuations there and focus more on secondary and private equity. That's probably how I would set it up. As I mentioned, a little bit less in depth than Julian, but there we are. That's exactly what we wanted to hear. It's nice to finish with an opinion. That broadly brings us to the end. Unfortunately for Julian and Nico, the fee for this podcast was not $10 million, but it's nice to know how they would have done with it all the same. So I'm left to thank the guys for joining us. So Nico and Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. And to everybody listening, thank you so much for supporting Apex and thanks for joining the Single Source Podcast. We will be back with many, many more in the weeks and months to come. Thank you.